I'm James Hayes. I'll be reading the Bible for you today. Uh, Genesis 3, verses 1 to 13. I'll give you a moment to find that in the Bibles. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from the tree your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she took some Sorry. She, uh, she, gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, which, who was with her, and he ate it. The eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sounds of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. In the cool of the day, they hid from the Lord among the trees. Of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, "Where are you?" He answered, "I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid." And he said, "Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from?" The man said, "The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it." The Lord God said to the woman, "What is this you have done?" The woman said, "The serpent deceived me, and I ate." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, James. Good evening, everyone. My name's Jerry. I'm one of the ministers here. Welcome to all of you, especially if you're new or feeling newish. One of the best parts of my job is that I have the privilege of talking to people who are exploring faith, hearing their objections and questions. And in my conversations, I'm realizing how outdated the idea of sin is. What's it to God? How much I drink or who I sleep with? How does my jealous thought or white lie affect a God who's way up there in the sky? Doesn't that make him a bit petty? If I were God. And as Christian people, we can share this misunderstanding too. The sin out there in the world, very bad. My sin isn't that bad. Who does it hurt if I don't act with sexual integrity? I'll just keep it to myself. What's the difference if I lost my call five times this week versus 10? You have no idea how irritating the people I live with are. I'm a nice person. Isn't God being slightly dramatic? If I were God. How does your mind finish that sentence? God invites our questions, but sometimes some of these questions can mask an assumption that we know better and a suspicion that God isn't as good as he claims. Genesis 3, just read to us, tells us why that's so problematic and why the if-I-were-God attitude is so natural to us, because of sin. Uh, this series in Genesis is about the beginning of everything, so let me catch us up on what's happened so far. Chapter 1 was the cosmic, high-level picture of creation, and then we zoomed in to chapter 2 last week to see God's purpose for humanity. 
And chapter three is the next episode in the human story. This is the good created order. We have our loving creator at the top. He rules over humans, they're made in his image, they represent him, and he delegates some of his rule to humans, to men and women, to rule side by side as companions over the non-human creation, to work. When this order is upheld, everything is very good. In chapter two, when we first meet uh, the humans, Adam and Eve, uh, we zoom into the garden center and see that there are two trees there. One is called the tree of life, and God commands them to eat from this tree along with all the other trees he says they should eat. And this tree, the tree of life, when they eat from it, they receive the gift of eternal life as dependent creatures of God. When they do that, they continue in the good created order. There's another tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God tells them not to eat from the tree. It's the one restriction that God has laid down. Enjoy everything else, but don't trespass this one boundary. The consequence is the logical opposite of everything that's life-giving and good. If you eat from this tree, it will bring death and evil into the world. That's where we're up to. And you probably already know what happens next in this story. So I think it's good to name uh, a question we might have as we come to it. Why did God put this tree there? Is this a cruel setup all along? Is this entrapment? But God is our loving creator, uh, so he can't be an entrapper. Made in his image, God gives humans the dignity of choice. And God has only set up Adam and Eve for success, not for failure. He set them up for success to make the life-giving choice. He's given them every reason they've experienced firsthand the abundant provision of his good gifts. He's given them no reason to doubt he is good, that he loves them. And yet everything goes wrong. Uh, chapter three is a well-crafted retelling of a historical event. It's got lots of symbolic elements, but it's a true story of the beginning of sin. And we'll cover these three points in today's sermon. Satan's lie, humanity's sin, and God's reaction. So we pick up the story and we meet a strategic serpent character. Uh, whether this is a literal snake or rich ancient Near East imagery, we quickly realize he is a creature in rebellion. And other parts of scripture tie this creature in rebellion to the one who was once part of God's heavenly court. It's Satan, the evil one, who speaks through the snake figure. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It's not an earnest question, it's an accusation. God actually said you can't enjoy any of these trees. What a selfish withholder. This is a lie. God is clearly the loving creator who's given them so many good gifts. And Eve isn't immediately fooled. The serpent said to the woman, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. She's referring to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when we compare what she says here to the command given in chapter two, we see that Eve overstates God's restriction a bit. Maybe she's just being extra careful as not to trespass that boundary, or maybe when Adam passes on this command to Eve, one of them added, don't even touch it. Uh, speaking of Adam, where is he? 
Uh, he's conspicuously silent in the story so far, but later we see that he was with Eve the whole time and he's in on it. They're being, uh, they're being tempted by Satan, but neither Adam or Eve are unassuming victims. Eve's response shows us they know exactly what they're doing. God gives humans a dignity of full moral agency, freedom to choose, and the responsibility of those choices. Satan's lie continues. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's a liar, says the liar. Satan assures them that they won't die. And he paints a picture of God that's very different to the loving creator they know so well. The God they know wants to protect them from the dysfunction of sin and death. He abundantly gives good. His love for them overflows. Satan lies about a God who withholds from them, that he's less loving than he claims. God's restriction is all about not trespassing this line, to not overstep human limits and reach to be like God apart from God. And Satan's a strategic liar, so he twists God's loving restriction to make him seem untrustworthy. Because of course God doesn't want their eyes to be open to a world with evil in it. He wants them to continue learning wisdom under his loving care as he walks with them in the garden. Humans suffer when we do what is good in our own eyes. Of course, God doesn't want humans to be their own gods. It's an offense to him, the creator, and it will crush them as dependent creatures. The tragedy is that God has already made them like him in the most life-giving way, made in his image. Satan's lie is that you cannot depend on the loving creator. His lie is the thought that begins with, if I were God. The first humans, and consequently all humans, trust Satan's lie. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Unlike pop culture tells us, the original sin isn't that Adam and Eve took the bite of a forbidden apple, but that they wanted to be independent of God, that they reject him as their loving creator. They want the abundant provision of God apart from God. Out of that desire, they disobey God and trespass his restriction and sin enters the world. Sin is rejection of God and it puts us in a state of separation from him. And when this happens, it's as if you can hear the glass shattering and the funeral dirge begin to play. Just as God says, death enters the world. Every evil and suffering are signs of death, poisoning and upturning the good created order. Before this point, Adam and Eve enjoyed all manner of life-giving gifts and eternal life with God, perfect relationship. Now they are dying and will surely die. It's the only logical consequence when humans separate themselves from their loving creator. They don't drop dead then and there, but they now live with death all around them and are destined for a continuation of this choice that they have made, eternal separation from God. And since this event in the garden, sin is a generational disease we inherit, 
within our human nature. And also, like Adam and Eve, we choose to reject our loving creator. This is the reason that so many are far away from God today. This is the reason that right now across the world, brutal wars escalate. This is the reason that children are trafficked into slavery. Those terrible things out there, most of us can agree that that's definitely sin at work. But we're nice people trying our best. We think our sins are not too bad. Sure, lying is a sin, but it grows out of something deeper within your human condition, the capital S sin. It's the state of sin that humans are in apart from God. Sin is the reason that our relationships can carry layers of pain and hurt. It's a reason that we choose to do the things we don't want to do again and again. And apart from God, we exist in that state of sin and it leads to death and we are absolutely powerless to escape it ourselves. Apart from God, we are dying and will surely die. So sin isn't just a functionally bad condition we're in. When we reject our loving creator, we commit the highest relationship betrayal, it's treason. As dependent creatures, we say to him, I don't need you, I don't trust you, I don't love you and I don't care to know you. In this rejection, there are also cosmic consequences for the order of the world. There is still so much good in creation, but all of creation is now poisoned by sin and therefore death. And we see it start to play out already in the story. Instead of Adam and Eve being companions who rule over creation, they've chosen to obey a creature, the snake. And where before, as husband and wife, they were naked and felt no shame, now shame has soured their trusting relationship. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Nakedness isn't the problem. It was normal in God's good created order, but the innocence of nakedness is now inconsistent with their guilty state of sin. Their betrayal of God causes them to feel unclean and unworthy. And they look at each other, now both sinners, and see that the other isn't trustworthy with the vulnerability of nakedness. The companions become opponents. And since they've claimed the authority of God as well, they look at their human bodies and they are exposed for the vulnerable, weak humans that they really are. And so they have to cover up that even though they're trying to be like God, that they're not. Exposed and ashamed, they hide from each other, they hide from God. And it's like the shame jumps out of the story. It's such a powerful force. Shame makes us want to hide our sin. Um, I was a scrawny little kid with one of those huge backpacks. <laughs> and I remember in year two, uh, my parents were working really hard with me to help me eat better. I didn't have a eating disorder or body dysmorphia, it's a hard word, um, that would have been different. Uh, but my, I had this attitude, <laughs> as, um, as kids often do, when my parents really wanted me to do something, I relished doing the complete opposite, and I was being a rebellious rat bag. So my mom takes me to Woolies on Friday night, and she says I can pick any reasonably healthy snack, 
and I can take it to school and eat it. And I remember picking packs of this chocolate yogurt that had this, I tried to find the brand, I couldn't. It had this child bait purple packaging and I think it had monkeys on the front. So if you remember it, I'd love to uh, know what the name was. Monday morning, as always, she sent my food on the counter for me to pack up for school. And after school, she asked me how the yogurt was. I said, ma, so delicious. All while knowing it was the bottom of my bag. Uh, the next day, packed the yogurt, didn't eat it. And on and on this went. And I'd walked to school at this time, um, 25 minutes each way. So my huge school bag got heavier and heavier with rancid yogurt. And every time I put my backpack on, I would get this deep churning sense of guilt in my stomach. I know I needed to fix this, but I was way too embarrassed to risk getting like six pots of yogurt out of my bag at school to put in the bin there. I couldn't do it at home. So I decided I would just hide from the problem. Why was my bag so heavy? We could never know. Uh, a couple of weeks into this, I put my backpack on and it wasn't heavy, it was light. What a relief. On some level, I thought that I had just put the yogurt so far into my huge bag, it just disappeared. But that day I got home from school and my parents asked me if I ate my lunch. As usual, I lied. And they looked at each other knowingly and took me into my bedroom. And I remember sitting on the edge of my bed and facing my wardrobe. They had two sliding glass doors. On the left side, I usually stored my clothes and my things. On the right side was family storage for other things. We never used it. And my dad slid open this right side door and on the shelf in front of me were all of my rancid yogurts stacked. I think there was like 12 or 14 of them stacked on top of each other. Um, my parents had found them at the bottom of my bag. Maybe they picked up my bag and wondered why it was so heavy. And there it was in front of me, my sins completely exposed. I wish I learnt my lesson then and there but I remember looking at my guilty face in the mirror and thinking, I should have been smarter about this. <laughs> we laugh, but I look back at, at this as a real tragedy. I, I grew into a teenager who lied to myself and others, and I compartmentalized parts of my life, and there was a different version of me everywhere. And I felt so stuck in the heaviness of my sin. I was so ashamed. I now felt far away from God and the people who loved me and the power of shame convinced me there was no way out. And every time I went to church, tried to read the Bible or started to pray, I kind of backed off. I kept my distance from God because I was in too deep with my sin. We hide from God because we fear his reaction to our sin. We've seen that Satan's lie denies the goodness of God. Humanity's sin denies dependence on God. And now we see God's reaction. Adam and Eve hear God coming as they hide in their trees. They're scared. How will God react? Will he thunder in, furious? Will he strike them down? Will he yell? Will he scream? Will he give them the silent treatment? Will he stand right outside the trees with his arms crossed and wait for them to pluck up the courage to come to him? God has been betrayed. Sin is serious. But God doesn't ever react like a betrayed human does. 
He strolls in the garden in the cool of the day as it seems he always did. He's unrushed and unsurprised towards their sin. God reacts to human sin with grace. He reacts better than we deserve. And since he already knows exactly what's happened with Adam and Eve, his questions here are an invitation. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Who told you? Whose voice have you been listening to instead of mine? This is their response. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is it? What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. They shift blame on another. And Adam goes as far as to blame God for giving him the woman he once delighted in. And it's just so typically human of them to respond like this. We find ourselves saying, I'm sorry, but I didn't mean to hurt you. I'm sorry, but I was having a very stressful day. I'm sorry, but you weren't being very nice either. When our sin is exposed, the only appropriate response is sorry, full stop. And as we so often do, Adam and Eve failed to take full responsibility for their sin. And yet God still sees them as his most precious creation, made in his image. He loves them. They had betrayed God and run from him in fear. But his love for them has not lessened one bit. He pursues them. Satan was wrong. God is not less loving than he says he is, despite our sin. He is more loving than we deserve. And in the coming weeks, we'll see how the effects of sin play out. But I want to hold our attention on why we fear God's reaction towards our sin. The exposure of our sin can feel unbearable. But God is not surprised at your sin. He is able and willing to bear it. No matter how far away you feel from him, you can trust him to respond with grace, with a love better than you deserve. It's just who he is. And when you act as if you don't need him or trust him or love him or care to know him, he's betrayed, but he's not surprised. He knows your ugliest thoughts. He knows about your repeated failures. And he knows the things you are most ashamed about. And his reaction is still again and again to come and find you hiding in your shame. Exposing your sin to God is the first step to defeating it because his love just melts away the shame. This is what our loving creator offers all humanity in the Lord Jesus. While we were still sinners, powerless to rescue ourselves from death, hiding in the trees, Jesus comes to us. He pursues us in order that he might bear the shame and sin that we cannot. We read in Romans 5, 17 to 19, for if by the trespass of one man, this is Adam who represents all humans, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteous reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? God remains a loving creator, we read in the garden. Actually, 
how much more is the abundant good gift of grace that we know through Jesus? He loves us so much that he would give his own son. And we can be sure that he's very good. He loves us more than we deserve. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. This righteous act happens on the cross where Jesus dies to bear the sin we cannot. And he's able to do this because he spends his lifetime resisting Satan's lies and obeying God and never giving in to sin. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The one human, Adam, we've just read about, brought about sin and death. And the one human, Jesus, brings about the gift of repaired relationship with our loving creator, with life eternal, forgiveness of sins. He's given us every reason to depend on him. And God's call to you even now is, where are you? If you've never taken up his gift of grace, you've never confessed your sin to him and received Jesus' rescue on your behalf, maybe you've just been around for a while and absorbed the information, but you are yet to do business with God and take ownership of your own faith, don't go another day without him. While you've been running away or hiding from him, he's been pursuing you and he waits to offer you grace. So come to him. If you have been rescued by the death of Jesus and you're feeling the weight of your sin, the shame, today is a good day to surrender that to your loving creator. Covering up sin never works. I can testify to that. It's a lie of Satan that says God is withholding or can't be trusted. God wants to shower you with grace. His love is overflowing for you. And he wants more for you than walking around with a backpack full of rancid yogurt. Come again to him. As shortly we will join in a time of confession. And confession gives us words to together acknowledge our sin and say sorry to God. So take this opportunity to come out of hiding Bring your sin before God and see your loving creator who has been waiting to show you far more love than you can dream. Let's pray. Our loving creator God, you are so good and you give us far better than we deserve in the Lord Jesus. We see this on the cross in how much you love us. We remember Jesus' words his call to all who are weary and burdened. So soften our hearts now by your spirit that we may come to you and receive your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.